0: through 21 After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him." When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked where the Messiah was born. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through its prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then uh, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because there are no more. After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he went back to the land of Israel. So uh, I figured I'd start out uh, my uh, epiphany sermon by talking about zombies and laxatives. (laughs) The kids and I and the market, if market success is any measure, lots of our fellow Americans, and I know folks in here love apocalyptic entertainment. So zombies, pandemics, stuff where the world is about to end. And I often wonder why, I think about it, I guess, like, for me, I mean, there's lots of reasons, you, you might imagine, but for me, there's two reasons. First, usually the apocalypse is coming because of something that we did. You know, like zombie movies, or because we modified genes, or uh, we created the nuclear bomb, or we weren't paying attention to the environment, or whatever the thing is. So apocalyptic stories usually have a kind of moral story embedded in them about the world, and... Uh, Two, they're not all bad, it's not just you know that the world is going to end, but they show us that the world can be changed. So it's a weird way of thinking about it, but I don't know, imagine you think of the most good zombie flicks that you know about, and of course it's not great to be surrounded by zombies, but you know it also opens up this kind of realm for these inventive heroes who can do something, and even though the world kind of sucks as it is, for better or for worse, that world can be turned upside down and, and made right, depending on your perspective. Now, uh, so that's zombies for a moment, laxatives. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, some folks call him a philosopher, I call him a theologian, is a guy who I've talked to you about before. He's the one who compared Christianity to a medicine that if you took a half dose, it would make things worse, but if you took the full dose, it would cure you. So that was his laxative example. Imagine something that a half dose plugs you up, the full dose does the job. What a great Christmas image. It's gross, but you get the point. So much of what Jesus says about the religious authorities of his time and of our time is about folks who want halfway Christianity. They want a kind of graceless, selfish way of assuring themselves of their own piety and their own goodness. Uh, they want to kind of feel the comfort of having made a deal with God. But if you make the right deal and believe the right things, you won't die. It's a version of Christianity that tells us the world is okay as it is. And even if it isn't, that's not our problem. So uh, what's the tie between zombies and laxatives? Kierkegaard's point was that the task of any good Christian should be to proclaim the gospel in such a way that we might make Christianity difficult again, strange again, see what it means for us to be fully committed to it, to kind of re-see it with fresh eyes, and to see how crazy it is to call for us to believe without proof to love without self-interest, and honestly to kind of yearn for the world to be turned upside down. Because we do, and maybe even put right side side up, depending on your perspective, that our Christianity should not only comfort us, but it should challenge us. And Kierkegaard makes the point that that injunction to see the gospel anew is not just about theology writ large, it's about how we read the specific stories that make up our understanding of the faith. That's a long tee-up for a very simple point. We are so used to seeing the Magi in nativity scenes and at Christmas pageants and on cards, they've become so familiar to us that we don't easily see that the whole point of them in Matthew's gospel is to say something downright apocalyptic. It's to say that the world is about to be or has been turned upside down by Jesus. And in fact, you know, if we see what the Magi are about and how strange they are, hopefully it helps us see something different about the character of the Gospel of Matthew, about the way it presents Jesus. Because as you recall, like, it starts basically with the genealogy, and the first real action starts when the Magi come, and they visit Jesus after Jesus' birth. And its treatment, as you saw in, in chapter 2, is of Jesus' birth is not very extensive. So why start with this story? Well... It's not just for a greeting card fodder. It's because to understand this story and why these weird travelers from the east have shown up at Jesus' birth, you have to understand it as an apocalyptic story. All right. Two. Two, one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the magic I've talked about before, because I basically do this every year, uh, magoi is the Greek word. It's used in the Bible to describe Balaam, for example. It describes some other folks. Uh, both the Romans and the Jews had kind of banned the practice of magic. They, they banned magoi, but in other parts of the ancient world as you know, they're like an important part of a king's cabinet. And I think over the years I've talked about all the different theories about who they are, but the gospel's not that concerned about it. You know, like that's one of the funny parts is that the gospel doesn't really want to put that much time into talking about where they are, who they are, where they came from, or even how many of them there were. So like, you know, some folks say they were Jewish magicians descended from the Levites who were relocated in Babylonian exile. Others say they were just dudes who were born in the Far East that studied the stars. Linda and Dan, I want to tell you, there's a great coins angle where <laughs> there's... See, uh, caesar augustus had advertised the birth of a new emperor with a coin that had a comment on it that foretold his coming and anyway i didn't pursue it but you know <laughs> i could have uh others say they're parthian priests who you know have this kind of weird romanticized vision of parthian governance where the priests were the ones who helped pick the king i don't know i think they're likely persian zoroastrian astrologers who advised the court of the king but i don't think it matters that much because who they are is not as important as what they're doing. So in the olden days, before the internet, even before dial-up, the way you validated news, the way you celebrated it, was you sent observers from one king's court to another king's court. I've talked about it before. It was uh, called the theoros. It was an office, like ancient diplomats were a sign of recognition and respect between kings. So if someone had something going on in their kingdom you'd send off some of your diplomats to go document it so this is kind of a big deal if you really start to read this story closely right off the bat the story of matthew is foregrounding a basically apocalyptic conflict that's going to turn the world upside down now there's lots of subtle details here first of all the text implies that the magi don't go right to herod's court which is where they'd go if they were diplomats because that would recognize Herod is the king. It says during the time of King Herod, but it locates the place they went to as Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem and start asking around. That's like a huge insult to Herod because if Herod's the legitimate king and not some puppet king installed by Rome, the Magoi would have headed right there. And recall, Rome was basically the most important western power of the time, right? I mean, when people thought about the west and western powers, they thought about Rome. And so I've been harping on like you know, Herod was this kind of illegitimate Roman Western-backed stool pigeon who packed the temple with his boys to make sure the religious order reinforced the political order. And so hitting Herod was also hitting the legitimacy of the temple. And the way Matthew tells the story is hitting Herod. It's saying the whole system is bankri- basically bankrupt. He was installed, the king of Judea, and the Magoi not only don't come, to see him directly, which would be a symbol that he's illegitimate. But the other big thing in this passage is what? It says that Herod was the, the ruler at the time, but that Jesus is what? Born king of the Jews. So saying Jesus is born king of the Jews is a claim to right by bloodline. And that's why it starts with the genealogy. So whereas Herod is from the West and is installed and is illegitimate, the Magoi don't go to see him, Jesus is the born King of the Jews as opposed to the installed leader of Judea, so like, there's all these kind of insults to Herod that are piled up into the first couple of verses. So that we've already got the story about two kings, one born, one illegitimately appointed, there's sages from the east versus a puppet from the west, but there's even more than that. The birth of the new king is not only recognized by the Magi, they're just kind of the witnesses. The birth of the king of the Jews is testified to in this story by what, ultimately? The cosmos itself, right? Like the birth of Jesus has been reflected in the natural world, in the cosmos. There was this, And there's this natural belief in antiquity that stars heralded the birth of kings. So the skies, not only are the Magoi not going to see Herod, not only is Jesus the born king of the Jews, whereas he's installed as validated by the east instead of a illegitimate western power, But the cosmos itself is testifying to Herod being illegitimate here. Insult 3, 4, I don't know. I mean, it's really starting to pile up on Herod and kind of make a fairly revolutionary call about what should happen with Herod. The wise men say, we saw his star when it rose and we came to worship him. Now, Now, worship is a bit of a euphemism here. The Greek word is proskuneo. And it means something that was kind of political and kind of religious. It's hard to parse because, you know, back in the day, it was oftentimes outside of Christianity, very difficult to tell the difference between a king and a god. But proscueo meant to lay prostrate on the ground in front of someone and to kiss the ground in a show of love and submission. So it was something that you would only do for a god or a king. You know, it's not just worship. They're not like singing carols here. It's like laying yourself out, kissing the ground, potentially bringing a gift. So the Magi aren't coming to sing those carols. They're coming to bring gifts and to proskuneo in the presence of the newborn king. That's another clue about what Matthew is doing with the Magi. The cosmos testifies to Jesus being both royal and divine because they are proscuneoing in response to the signal that the cosmos sends them. And of course, One of the weird things, but kind of beautiful things about this idea of proscuneo is that if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it makes a huge point out of basically picking out people from every geography and every part of social life and having them proscuneo themselves before Jesus. So the Magoi do it, the Roman centurion does it, the Canaanite woman does it, a leper does it, sailors do it, slaves do it. And Matthew's kind of making this point that people from all over the world, east, west, and elsewhere, all walks of life, are going to come to proscuneo, to love and submit to Jesus as both king and as divine. That's what I mean when I say it's turning the world upside down, like The whole point is that Jesus' birth is demonstrating that all the existing orders are illegitimate and that there is a new order that is testified to by the cosmos where throughout the story people are continually coming to Jesus and laying themselves prostrate before him and kissing the ground in front of him to give the ultimate signal that Jesus is both the king and is divine. And they're recognizing his sovereignty and divinity and the magi are just the first everyone's going to see it, and it's going to turn the world upside down. And here's the thing. Herod, though illegitimate and immoral and a liar, Herod gets it. Verse 3. When King Herod learned this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So disturbed is a bit, bit soft. The Greek word is tarasso, and it's like wild, agitated pacing. So Herod knows what's at stake. So does the rest of Jerusalem, and the institutions governing it. So he calls all the priests and the teachers of the law together, and he asks... Where is this Messiah looking for likely to be? So they all kind of get together, they talk, and they cite a prophecy from Micah. And this is one of the beautiful things about Matthew that I absolutely love, which is that Matthew has very strategic uses of the Old Testament. And a lot of times one of the beautiful things Matthew will do is leave little pieces out that Matthew imagined the audience would fill in to say something kind of awesome about the story. So this is a wonderful example of what is not said. They, the, the scribes cite Micah, and they do a fragment of 5-2, and they do a fragment of 5-4. <laughs> so folks who would have heard this and heard this element of the story would know that chapter 4 of Micah, I mean, it was before the chapters, but the, ele- the elements in Micah just before this prophecy is about the mountain of the Lord's temple. And it was about reestablishing the Lord's temple and reestablishing Israel, and it kind of makes this claim that all the peoples of the world will start to stream to it, which is a big theme that, as I've just pointed out, Matthew is, is picking up. And so, you know, it's clearly anticipating not only the visit of the Magi, but as Matthew frames it, the entirety of the world coming to proskuneo before Jesus as the, as, the, as the divine king. It's also interesting that they cite 5.2 and 5.4, but they omit verse 3. Which would have some dire implications for Herod. Maybe they knew that Herod was likely to hurt the messenger, as the wise men do. So, verse three of Micah, five, or verse three, of Micah five says, "Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers join, return to join the Israelites." Okay, so the audience fills that in. The audience fills that in and sees the connection with Jesus. And it seems like Herod kind of fills it in too, because Herod did and did what Herod usually does. He takes that information and the implied stuff, and he lies to the Magoi. What does he say? Go find him so that I too may proscuneo him. Go find him so that I too may bow down in front of him, prostrate and and kiss the ground in front of him. So they go, I mean, I guess they take Herod at his word, and they, and they go to the place where the child is. And it's uh, an awesome Greek here that I totally love. It's uh, Their sense of joy is so powerful that the gospel says it twice. So it says, They ekarasan karond literally rejoiced with great joy. And they deliver gifts. And there are all kinds of different interpretations of the gifts. And I've talked about those before. But the point is, they are, you know, at least gifts that you'd give a king. And then the scripture tells us after they deliver those gifts, they've been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they go by another route that theme of routes is one i preached about before and i think it's really beautiful to say once you see jesus you can't take the same route home yada yada i love the the message behind it but i also want to kind of talk about how that theme of routes wraps up that what's so darn apocalyptic about this story because there are all kinds of changes in route that happen in the kind of last portions of this verse in fact you might argue that it's a central theme for it. And it makes sense because the story of Israel is a story of, I don't know, weird routes, isn't it? Like it's a story of escape. It's a story of exile. It's a story of wandering. It was kind of woven into the identity of Israel. You know, God, what's their core story? God saving them from Pharaoh by making a way. So this subtle thread starts to emerge in the end of this. It just shows how apocalyptic, how topsy-turvy it is that the Magi have come to see Jesus and what exactly Jesus has done to the order of the world as it exists. It's not just the Magoi who need to go home another way, which already kind of positions Herod like Pharaoh a little bit, doesn't it? Like Pharaoh's the one that you kind of got to run from. Verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but usually, Israel is trying to escape Egypt. And usually, it's because Pharaoh is bent on killing a bunch of Israel's children. And in the story of Israel, God appoints a leader to bring his people and their children out of Egypt. But here, Herod, the sitting ruler of Jerusalem, has become exactly like Pharaoh. And Jesus has become a metaphor for Israel itself. We've talked about the idea of of a divine redo before. Jesus kind of doing the things that Israel did a second time and and getting them right. But just think about all the inversions in this story. Jesus is the true Israel. Herod is Pharaoh. He wants to hold on to his power and he's ruthlessly committed to getting rid of anybody who's any threat to it. So Joseph takes Mary and Jesus, the new Israel, and heads to Egypt. Israel is hiding in Egypt. Then verse 15 says, where he stayed until the death of Herod, so is fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. That's a citation of Hosea 11.1, and it's another really interesting and beautiful example of how Matthew uses his audience's knowledge of the Old Testament to make a point. How do we know Jesus is a metaphor for Israel? It's not just the interpretive stuff that we were just talking about. Matthew and Hosea make that link explicitly for us. So, the uh, Hosea 11.1 1 is out of Egypt, I called my son. But the full text of Hosea 11.1 1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And 11.2 continues by saying, basically God's lamenting, but the more they were called, the more they ran away from me. But not Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. They hear the call They take the true Israel, Jesus, they run from the new Pharaoh, Herod, and they run to Egypt. The world is totally upside down here. That's what I mean by something that's completely apocalyptic. Herod is Pharaoh, Herod's Jerusalem is Egypt, and Jesus, the true Israel, is actually fleeing into the land of the Exodus. And just to complete it, so Herod goes full Pharaoh in verse 16, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magoi. Herod Herod dies eventually. Angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and calls him back to Israel. So he gets up, he takes the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. But to really see what's so apocalyptic about the visit of the Magoi, we have to, just like good old Soren says, see how strange and difficult the story is. I mean, the point is the the Magi aren't just like some nice beturbaned randos who are there to bring gifts. Matthew's using them to tell a story about a world that's about to be so turned upside down that Israel will become Egypt. That Israel will be uh, Jesus, the true Israel, will flee to Egypt. That the sitting ruler of Israel at the time would become exactly parallel to Pharaoh, the born king of Israel has revealed the character of the world as it is. The born king of Israel has displaced the illegitimate one, and all the folks in the temple and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the entirety of the religious authorities have become agents of the new Pharaoh, and the actual Egypt has become a sanctuary for the true Israel. I mean, that's about as apocalyptic as a zombie movie. I mean, everything is literally turned upside down by the coming of Jesus as revealed in the, 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 the Magoi. The world as folks knew it is the point is was about to fall apart and be remade, and think about all the different ways that that spins out in the story of Christianity. What the Magoy and the flight from it to, to and from Egypt represent—all these things that are so upside down and difficult to believe in some ways—the gift of grace is going to defeat sin because folks from the east and the west and all walks of life will begin to proscuneal themselves, will begin to lay themselves in front of the newborn God-King who was born in a feeding trough. The infinite, eternal Logos, begotten before time, will be embedded in a tiny, fragile refugee, birthed by a virgin, by the way, who will perfect God's power In weakness that refugee a poor Jewish Palestinian carpenter and a victim of the worst that Rome could muster will secure life for all of us by dying and in dying he will defeat death and the first sign of it at least in Matthew's gospel will be a visit from an indeterminate number of likely Zoroastrian court astrologers following a star to a small town called Bethlehem because his fingerprints are written in the cosmos is a weird and strange and beautiful story It is a weird and strange and beautiful story that calls us to see the revolutionary character of jesus's birth it is a weird and strange and beautiful story that we need to see is in some ways not only being comforting but being strange and difficult because it is hard to believe but for the grace of god and yet god's grace abounds it is revealed to us in that child and god loves us without limit as is revealed to us in that child and soon the whole world will see as is revealed by the number of people coming from all over to proscuneo themselves before the divine king he's turning the world upside down but he's making all things new and for us we can have the confidence that the world as we too know it will end that the world as we too know it is already ending with the advent of jesus christ We only need to see how the cosmos is showing it to us in the character of, you know, not only the stars, but all the different ways that God has extended grace to us. And we only need to see the way that it shatters our understanding of the world as it currently exists and have faith that by Christ's grace and love, it will be transformed. Amen.